Workers' Comp Matters, the podcast dedicated to the laws, the landmark cases, and the people that make up the diverse world of workers' compensation. Here are your hosts, Judd and Alan Pierce. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Workers' Comp Matters. I am Judd Pierce from the law firm of Pierce Napolitano in Salem, Massachusetts. And today we bring you an interesting segment with cases that have peculiar fact patterns and histories. By way of introduction, you really don't need an introduction. We have uh, my father, co-host and founder of this program, attorney Alan Pierce, here to discuss uh, some of the cases uh, that we're going to be talking about. Thank you, Judd, and uh, welcome, everybody. I think this will be a little bit of a different type of show than we usually do. We are going to, as Judd said, talk about some interesting sets of facts uh, that are applied to existing legal principles of law in the area of workers' comp and see how these cases had been decided in other jurisdictions. I do want to uh, make two comments before we proceed. First of all, even though we are going to be talking about some of these cases perhaps a bit lightly. They you know, were injuries that occurred in unusual circumstances. Uh, we by no means want to make light of the fact that this did involve people that were injured, some, some seriously injured in situations that may not immediately become apparent as being covered under workers' comp. And the second thing I would like to point out is that Every state, every jurisdiction applies the general principles of workers' compensation somewhat differently so that any of the topics or decisions or rationales for the decisions we discuss in this uh, program do not necessarily reflect the state of the law everywhere. And as you will hear in a few moments, some of these cases were decided one way by an industrial board, and then um, that decision was reversed uh, by an appellate body. So certainly there are at least two sides to every story, and there are more than enough stories in the field of workers' comp that we could fill a program such as this and perhaps many more. So uh, yeah. with that uh, brief caveat to our listeners, Judd, why don't we begin? All right. Uh, well, w- this first case we're going to be talking about is a case that we know very well in this office. You handled really through uh, in Massachusetts to the Supreme Judicial Court, um, and it had to do with, I believe she was a teacher— and she was on a, a school trip outing where they had stayed overnight, maybe, and they were skiing, and there was an accident there on the ski slope. Could you tell us uh, about that case, Alan? Yes, this, we call this the skiing chaperone case. Uh, our client, I'll call her Laura for purposes of this discussion. She was, as Judd mentioned, a high school math teacher, and the particular high school, which is the neighboring city from where we are broadcasting, had, uh, among all of its other student clubs, they had a ski club. And the ski club would plan, as Judd mentioned, weekend outings to the various ski lodges upstate uh, from us in New Hampshire or Vermont. And part of the regulations and rules for the ski club to exist would be that the, uh, the students needed to be chaperoned. And they actually had a formula for one um, chaperone per every five students. And these chaperones not only had to accompany the students on the slopes, but they had to be equipped to enforce school rules, watch out for injuries, make sure proper decorum was met, and also they were equipped with walkie-talkies so that if there was an injury or some other unusual event, the chaperone could contact uh, somebody for help. Now, one might think, well, this seems pretty clear-cut to be a work injury, 
Our client indeed was skiing with five students and suffered an injury. She injured her leg and the claim was denied by the city saying that this injury did not arise out of or in the course of her employment. She was employed as a school teacher. Her job hours were Monday through Friday from when the bell rang at eight in the morning until when the bell rang at 2.30 in the afternoon. And that a Saturday afternoon, a voluntary trip on a club for a club uh, for which she was not getting paid. She was not a teacher per se, uh, that this was not covered. And in fact, when we had this case tried before an administrative judge, he did agree with the city that this was not covered by workers' comp. So we appealed this case and it went all the way to the Supreme Judicial Court. And I will wanna make note that Massachusetts, like many other jurisdictions, has in its statute a provision that purely voluntary recreational activities are not covered by workers' comp. And it was the city's position and it was the judge's position that my client was engaged in a purely voluntary recreational activity. Now, her participation was indeed purely voluntary. What the case turned on was whether or not skiing with her students in the role of a chaperone was a recreational activity or an activity of work. And if it was an activity of work, was it part of her duties as a teacher? So it was a case that could have gone either way. I think it went the correct way. The justices uh, in Massachusetts did indeed affirm the fact that she was entitled to this award of benefits in that even though the injury occurred outside of the normal school week and the school hours, the fact that she was performing duties of a chaperone on behalf of the school was enough to bring it within the doctrine of an injury arising out of and in the course of employment. And secondly, they did agree with our position that even though she was skiing, which is indeed recreational, it need not always be recreational. There could be many instances such as this when while you may be enjoying the skiing, it is not recreational. Think about her being a chaperone and being responsible for the kids, but think about other people, ski instructors, ski patrols, they are skiing, but that's their primary occupation. So I think this case is illustrative of purely voluntary recreational activities and, and the intersection of that in terms of scope of employment. So having talked about that, uh, I wanna to move to a different case and talk to Judd about it. And this is a case involving a worker who was working uh, outdoors and he had to relieve himself. So he was on a railing over above a concrete slab that was six feet below. And as he was uh, relieving himself, the call of nature, and by the way, for those of you who have listened to past editions, we know that the so-called personal comfort doctrine does allow for workers' comp when somebody's engaged in activities of personal comfort. He fell and was fairly significantly injured when he hit this concrete and steel slab that was six feet below him. The interesting fact of this case is that when he was taken to the hospital, his blood alcohol level was 0.25 more times the legal limit for operating a motor vehicle. He also had marijuana or THC in his system. And the case turned on whether he was intoxicated, uh, which he was, and whether the intoxication defense would take precedent. Or as he and his attorney argued, he was really in, in involved of a, he was involved in a personal comfort activity and that he was injured because of the unique nature of this concrete steel ledge upon which he fell. So Judd, what do you think the courts did with uh, 
this poor worker in terms of uh, his claim for benefits? I would think that the courts would allow for his claim. And the reason I say that is because, you know, his his personal comfort for him to, to carry on with his job was paramount. He wouldn't have been able to be of any service to his employer. Were he uncomfortable or having to go to the bathroom, couldn't go to the bathroom, he had to do what he had to do. Be that as it may, he fell largely in part not to the railing, although it says that there was a rail involved and he sort of fell over the rail. So I'd, I'd be curious as to whether or not there was any sort of reason that uh, his, his fall happened other than just him being intoxicated. But assuming that, that everything was safe and sound and he, he fell due to his intoxication, the fact remains is he would not have been there but for having to relieve himself. I understand that this case may have gone another way, so please tell me if I'm wrong. <laughs> we don't have a buzzer, but if we had the buzzer, <laughs> you would have gotten it after your first sentence. Um, but your analysis was indeed the position put forth by this particular worker and his attorney. This case went to the Ninth Circuit. It was a federal case. It was a longshore case, which was a federal case. And actually, the panel disagreed with your analysis. They noted that the legal cause of his injury was intoxication, irrespective of the, of the surface material of the landing on which he mm -hmm. fell, mm -hmm. so that they uh, denied a review of the decision below that also denied benefits. So while this case was an unfortunate one, it turned on the intoxication. And there is, in most jurisdictions, a fairly significant intoxication defense. Now, yeah. I will point out, and Judd knows this, if he had died of his injuries mm -hmm. and not simply been injured, the federal workers' comp law, as well as many state workers' comp laws, will allow a widow or dependent spouse or dependent children to collect benefits notwithstanding the intoxication or the serious willful misconduct of the employee in causing his or her own injury. So you just have to prove essentially that a death occurred at the workplace. Right. And the de de intoxication defense is by statute in Massachusetts and by statute or case law in other jurisdictions, not a bar to dependent benefits in a fatal situation mm -hmm. so that the family may not be punished by the misconduct of the deceased worker. Uh, but the de deceased worker, had he survived, would not have been able, and in this case, did not collect benefits. Well, let's take a break now for a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back with you. We're going to be talking about another case having to deal with uh, intoxication. So we'll be right back with uh, another edition of Workers' Comp Matters in just a few moments. Be the best resource you can for your Spanish-speaking clients with the Spanish Group's Legal Translation Service. Experienced translators ensure accurate translation of your documents with same-day delivery. Confidentiality is ensured, and the Spanish Group guarantees acceptance for certified translations. All that, and their rates are competitive. If you need other languages, the Spanish Group translates in over 140 languages. Mention Legal Talk 20 when you request your quote for 20% off your first translation. Visit thespanishgroup.org. And we're back. We let off uh, before the break with a case having to do with uh, a longshoreman who fell, unfortunately, on the job. And it was held not to be compensable due to uh, uh, his intoxication. We have now another case that Alan's going to briefly describe for us. And I'm going to have to guess whether or not it's compensable and um, benefits were awarded or if they were denied. Why don't you go ahead, Alan? 
Yeah, this next case comes to us from the great state of Montana. It is a variation on the theme that we just talked about. In this case, a fellow by the name of Van Fleet was a deputy sheriff, and as part of his duties, he attended the Montana Narcotic Officers Association Conference, where they attended classes and uh, lectures on drug enforcement. Upon arriving at the facility, he and his supervisor went to a hospitality room sponsored by the conference. There was alcohol and food being offered. With the knowledge presence of his uh, direct supervisor, as well as the sheriff himself, they uh, drank uh, quite freely and were only told not to drink and drive. The hospitality room closed at midnight. Mr. Van Fleet had been drinking for six hours. He and four others then went to the hospitality room in the early after, uh, morning hours. They played drinking games for a half hour. And then they traveled to the fifth floor of the hotel and he fell to his death from the hotel balcony. His widow applied for workers' comp death benefits on behalf of herself and her child. Now, in this case, the fact that uh, his intoxication may have barred her entitlement, unlike the other cases, this case was denied on the grounds that the deceased worker was no longer within the course and scope of his employment because the hospitality room had closed and the widow appealed to the uh, state Supreme Court of Montana. Judd, what do you think the Montana uh, Supreme Court held? Well, I'm going to go with uh, thumbs up to the claim in this one, Alan. And the reason I say that is because you had mentioned that he was drinking for several hours. And whether or not uh, a court or a medical professional would be able to say, well, it was the after hours or after the hospitality room closed uh, that, that caused the, the, him to fall eventually, or, or rather was it the volume, volume of drinking he did within the six hours that the party was still going on and everyone was still there. I think there could be no doubt about the fact that he was there for work and part of his work was most likely networking in nature, and he was he was with vendors. So all that is, uh, uh, you know, in the arising out of his employment. And um, yeah, I would think that this should be, uh, the previous denial should be overruled. Well, we don't have a buzzer and we don't have a gong. So if we had a gong, I would ring it. You, in essence, summarize the findings uh, and the opinion of the Montana Supreme Court. A couple of notable factors here. One was, as you mentioned, he was off premises. He was away at a hotel for several days, paid for by his employer. The general rule, even across the country, is that traveling employees on a business trip are in the course of their employment pretty much the entire 24 hours of each day. And that the question in this case was narrowed down. Did he deviate from that? Was his intoxication enough to make this case not covered by workers' comp. And I think the second compelling factor on behalf of the widow is the fact that it wasn't as if he just went out drinking with some buddies and was drinking excessively. He was with his supervisor and his supervisor's supervisor. And during that first six hours, he was indeed drinking, not only with their knowledge, but uh, along with them. So that fact, together with the fact that they were traveling and in a, a remote location, uh, was enough for the Montana Supreme Court to indicate that despite his admittedly clearly intoxicated state, that had he been injured, or in this case because he was killed, he or his family would be indeed entitled uh, to workers' compensation benefits.
All right. Well, I'd like to uh, turn the tables a little bit and ask you about a few cases and see what you think and how the court may have uh, turned. Um, this one has to do with a truck driver. Uh, this case occurred uh, back in 2014. I'm not sure the jurisdiction, but there was a, a trainer of his. He was a newly hired truck driver. Uh, the trainer woke him up in the middle of the night. And a lot of these truck drivers, they, they sleep in their cabs. There's a, a part of the truck that they actually have a bed or some type of sleeping quarters. As he woke up, startled, uh, he started to step down from the bunk and stepped in a crock pot of hot water. He wasn't yet dressed for work or logged into work time, but he was told by his trainer that it was time to get up and perform a pre-trip inspection. So, was this an injury that occurred due to his employment, and was he was it arising out of his employment in the scope of his employment, Alan, or was this a case that was denied? Again, another interesting case and another case illustrative of, um, in a sense, I guess you would say the personal comfort doctrine. As you stated, he and his supervisor, he was a trainee, were in a uh, a cab of a uh, a big truck in which there were sleeping quarters. And as you su suggested, he was asleep, and his trainer woke him up, said it's, it's time to begin to go to work. And apparently, because of the fact that they had rudimentary cooking and drinking facilities, uh, there was, as you said, a crock pot of boiling water on the uh, floor of the cab of the truck. And he was not dressed for work. He had not punched the clock or logged in. But as he just simply got out of uh, the sleep mode, and put his foot down and went right into the crock pot of hot water. The employer's insurer argued that this was not and should not be a workers' comp claim, that he was asleep, got up, uh, he had not yet begun his workday, and they concluded that this was not enough association with work. The court in this case, in awarding benefits, noted the distinction that even though he had just awoken from sleep, was not working, he was furthering the interest of the employer. So they analogized this case to other cases involving truck drivers. Uh, there was another case where a driver was taking a shower and he slipped in the shower and that it was a result of personal grooming. In that case, that was not associated with the employment. So the truck driver who took a shower in a shower facility at a truck stop was not covered for comp, but this, this fellow was. I take issue with that other case. I, I, I think most jurisdictions would find that a long distance truck driver taking a shower during a trip would have been covered. But mm -hmm. this will show you how these cases, as interesting as they are, turn on sometimes a very small fact and also could be different from Supreme Court, Appeals Court, or Industrial Board from state to state to state. So there's no hard and fast rules, but these cases pretty much indicate you know, what the courts and what the industrial boards look at to determine if an injury is indeed work-related or not. Well, very interesting. Uh, we're going to continue with this program in just a few moments for a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back with you. Thanks. Mara's case is the number one law practice management solution tailor-made for workers' compensation firms. Streamline your practice with Mara's case's easy-to-use all-in-one platform. You're empowered to breeze through case and document management, workers' compensation forms, e-filing, calendaring, and invoicing. Learn how Mara's Case can increase your firm's efficiency today. Visit Mara'sCase.com. That's M-E-R-U-S-C-A-S-E.com. 
Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. Order up. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went to a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network. Available wherever podcasts are found. And we're back. And right before we uh, took off for break, we were talking about the, the crock pot of hot water in the, in the cab of the truck. And we have another variation on the personal comfort doctrine, Alan. I'd like to ask you your thoughts about how this case may have turned out. This was a case with a, a woman who had the comorbidity of being slightly overweight. Um, she was obese. She let's, was ob- let's not pull any punches. Okay. She was quite obese. She was an obese woman, uh, and she became injured at work at, at a work luncheon as a result of becoming stuck in the cafeteria booth. Okay. She had to essentially pull and twist to escape from a table and bench she was sitting on with so much force that this resulted in a broken femur and strains. Now, the workers' comp board ruled this accident was a result of a personal condition not covered by workers' compensation. Waters appealed the decision. How do you think the Court of Appeals turned? Well, the Court of Appeals turned the other way. They found that she was indeed covered for workers' comp. This, um, you know, she was having her, presumably lunch, doesn't say whether it was lunch, breakfast, or dinner, but we're assuming it's lunch. She's in the company cafeteria booth. She was pretty much wedged between uh, the immovable uh, bench upon which she was sitting and the table. And as a result of the struggle, as you mentioned, she, you know, broke a femur and she lost the case at the industrial board. The Court of Appeals... Uh, reversed a finding that the booth contributed to the injury, and it wasn't simply her personal condition of obesity that was the sole cause. If the workplace contributed to the injury, even in the slightest bit, then the personal condition could still result in a workplace injury, uh, a person injured, eligible for compensation. And this case illustrates why workers' comp is not clear-cut, because, you know, the overriding test is did it arise out of and in the conditions of employment looked at in all of the relevant circumstances? So that even though had she not been very heavy and obese, she wouldn't have had the injury. By the same token, if she were not availing herself of a lunch break during the workday, and generally those are covered as long as they happen in the employer's premises and not outside, uh, that indeed she was awarded workers' compensation benefits on appeal. Before we go into the last case that we're going to be talking about in our program, let me ask you this. If there was no binding of, of her between the table or the bench or the um, – it was simply her getting up from her lunch and her weight sort of caused her uh, to, to fall on the ground or, or her bone to crack because of, the, of, of just getting up, there was nothing that sort of you know, broke the femur. What would you say about its compensability then? I think she would have a less clear case, to be sure, because there are certain activities of daily living, even though they may occur in the workplace, simply because they occur in the workplace does not automatically make them 
covered under workers' comp, there still has to be some nexus, mm -hmm. some connection. In, the, in this case, even a slight connection. There has to be some connection to the, the workplace and the employers and furthering the employer's interests. Mm -hmm. So in the little twist of facts that you related, while she still may have recovered, I think it would have been a much, much harder or much higher hurdle. And before we get to that last case, you, Judd, had a case not unlike this, if you remember. We, you represented a long-distance truck driver. Oh, yeah. He was in a uh, three-point seat belt, so it was across his chest, and clearly unrelated to his employment. He suffered a seizure, and the seizure, would, could, we could not relate the seizure to the stress or strain of driving a truck. He had an underlying condition, and it was a sudden seizure, but because he was restrained in the truck with the seatbelt, and because the seizure produced extremely violent, jerky reactions, he suffered a severely fractured uh, um, spine because of being essentially harnessed in so that he had the tension force of the employment-related seatbelt operating on his body. Mm -hmm. So yep. this was also a close case, and if you remember, um, we prevailed, you, you made the successful argument that yes, the seizure wasn't related. The um, activities of his body relating to the seizure wouldn't be related, but the proximate cause, the actual cause of the fracture was the seatbelt that belonged to the employer's truck. So that is not unlike um, this particular case where an instrumentality, part of the employer's premises, as long as it had some role in the injury, might be enough in the right circumstances to be covered under workers' comp. So let's go yeah. to the last case, which I think is one of the more fascinating cases. Absolutely. And someone who uh, has had uh, very, very scary dreams in, in the past and waking up to them, not knowing if it actually happened or not, I can totally identify, uh, I guess, with what happened here. This is a worker who was um, in, in 2015 employed by the city of Siloam Springs, Arkansas, as a firefighter and an EMT. Uh, this gentleman worked 24-hour shifts. During his shifts, he was required to stay on the premises unless he was performing some work-related errand or activity. Because of these 24-hour scheduling schemes, the city provided sleeping arrangements and encouraged employees to sleep during nighttime hours. On one such shift at around 1.30 or 2 in the morning, uh, this gentleman woke up from a bad dream. He believed spiders were crawling all over him. Mm -hmm. And uh, during this sleep-based uh, stupor or dream, he jumped from the bed and in jumping suffered a fracture of the long bone outside of his left foot that connects his little toe, uh, which is the left fifth metatarsal. And this injury was not insignificant. It ultimately required surgery. And so the uh, firefighter, the EMT, filed a workers' compensation claim but, as you can imagine, the claim was challenged on the basis that it wasn't work-related. So, Alan, given those facts, how do you think the administrative judge came down? I would argue, and uh, quite uh, strenuously, that this indeed should be covered under workers' comp. He was in the employer's premises. Working 24 hours did require him to sleep and therefore be exposed to the risks attendant to and generally, there aren't many risks attending to sleeping, let's, to be sure, uh, <laughs> except a bad dream when you hop out of bed and you break, your, break a bone in your foot. Uh, but or even a crockpot. Or a crockpot. In this case, uh, I would have said, not knowing how it turned out, that he would have been covered. 
uh, but the claim was denied. The administrative judge that heard the claim denied the claim, noting that although his sleep benefited the employer, the dream about spiders was idiopathic in nature, that is, of an unknown origin. First of all, I don't agree it's an unknown origin. It, it was a dream about spiders. And that it was the <laughs> dream that caused him to jump out of bed and injure himself. Clearly, if there was an alarm for a fire and he jumped out of bed, I don't think this case would even make it into the law books. But in this case, it was a dream, mm-hmm. and which turned into a nightmare. So his claim was denied and uh, basically found that sleeping in the employer-provided facilities did not increase the risk of harm and determined that he failed to prove that he suffered a compensable injury, that this injury could have just as easily happened at home had he had the bad dream and the mere fact that he was on the employer's premises would be sufficient. But, um, you know, sometimes you get very conservative judges. Maybe this was the right decision as a long-term claimant attorney of many years. I think somebody who's working 24-7 And as long as they're not really deviating from employment by doing something stupid or frivolous or totally out of bounds. But if they have a nightmare, I think it's a risk of of, of being asleep, regardless if it happens at home. But this illustrates that uh, we're not always right and the courts are not always wrong. And in this case, this poor EMT uh, firefighter did not uh, recover workers' compensation benefits. I think that that was uh, probably a good case to, to end this program on. I mean, this was a topic I think we've wanted to do for some time, and doing it with you, Alan, is is a great pleasure uh, because, like I said, the first case we talked about today was a case we handled here in this office. You handled uh, to a successful resolution, the skiing chaperone. If you listeners uh, have any questions about these cases or perhaps cases in your own jurisdiction that you thought would be interesting uh, to talk about with us, we'd be happy to hear from you. But as always, we look forward to uh, having another show with you again in the near future. My name is Judd Pierce. And I am Alan Pierce. And uh, um, one thing we didn't discuss today were the cases I've lost. (laughs) And there are some of those as well, including the fellow playing on the company softball team who broke his shoulder sliding into second. Oh. So uh, in that case, it wasn't deemed to be work-related that it was deemed to be a purely voluntary recreational activity. So, you know, these you don't win them all and no, you don't lose no. them all. Just play the game as hard as you can and, uh, and do the best you can for your clients, whether yep. you're representing the injured worker, the employer, or the insurer. There are plenty of facts to, to argue and uh, a lot of case law to digest. So to those of you out there, thank you for listening and go out and make it a day that matters. 